Hi, my name is John Putch. You may remember me as Mordok and Mendon, the blue-headed Benzite creature in Star Trek The Next Generation, and also the guy with the camera attached to his head in Generations, the movie. And you're listening to Trek Untold. Hello and welcome to Trek Untold, the Star Trek podcast that goes beyond the stars. I'm your host, Matthew Kaplowitz. Every Star Trek fan has their favorite alien. Some favor Klingons, others love Cardassians, and me, I like them all just as much as the next Trekkie, but I've always had a bit of a soft spot for the Benzites. I don't know if it's because of my fondness for aquatic invertebrates and how seeing this race maybe reminds me of one, or maybe it's just that Benzites seem a little bit more like Star Wars cantina creatures to me than they do Star Trek aliens. And it tickles me so much that this one alien seems to mix both those fandoms together in a way that not really too many others in Trek have. Either way, I'm a Benzite fan through and through, and today we're talking with the first person to ever wear that Benzite makeup. John Putch played Mordok in the TNG Season 1 episode Coming of Age, where he, along with Wesley Crusher and a few other hopefuls, tried to enter Starfleet Academy by taking the test. Putch returned to play another Benzite in the Season 2 classic A Matter of Honor, this time serving aboard the bridge of the Enterprise. This actor came back to the franchise years later in the Star Trek Generations film, where he played a journalist on the bridge of the Enterprise B in the opening scenes of the film. For a point of reference, Putch is the guy that gets shoved by William Shatner, and yeah, he's got some pretty crazy stories about his time on that set. Beyond Star Trek, John has appeared in Grace Under Fire, Home Improvement, 21 Jump Street, Wings, The Magical World of Disney, The Love Boat, Seinfeld, New Heart, Hill Street Blues, One Day at a Time, and All in the Family. And speaking of All in the Family, John is the son of Gene Stapleton, who classic TV lovers will know best as Edith Bunker from All in the Family. So today, John's got a lot of stories to share about his time being in a variety of Norman Lear productions and just hanging around on set with some of those luminaries from the good old days of television. Outside of acting, John has an enormous resume of directing credits in television shows and films, including Scrubs, Ugly Betty, The Tracy Morgan Show, Grounded for Life, Cougar Town, Blackish, American Pie presents The Book of Love, Pursuit of Happiness, and American Housewife. He's also made plenty of indie films on his own. So for any guerrilla filmmakers out there, or people who want to go into this direction of making movies, but want to do it their way, this episode is going to be a good one for you to hear. Now before we start this week's episode, I want to ask you, are you following Trek Untold on social media? If you're not yet, please make sure to check out Trek Untold on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, so you can get the latest updates on the guests we're speaking to each week, along with all sorts of other great things we show. If you've been enjoying this show, please consider supporting us by checking out our merchandise on teespring.com slash stores slash trekuntold, where we've got mugs, t-shirts, cell phone cases, and all sorts of other crazy stuff you can buy to show off how much you love Trek Untold. Or please consider supporting us on Patreon by visiting patreon.com slash trekuntold. We've got a few different benefit tiers that help us out and give you a little something extra each week for the show. If you're a new listener or a regular listener who hasn't done this yet, please, of course, don't forget to subscribe to us, whether you're watching us on YouTube or on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or any other audio or video platforms you might find this show. And if you've been enjoying Trek Untold, whether it be the audio version or the video version, please make sure to leave a rating and review on iTunes or wherever you're checking out the show. Or if you're watching it on YouTube.com slash Nerd News Today, make sure to leave a comment and give us a thumbs up. 
Those little tiny things that'll take you a few moments to do will help this show out for light years to come and ensure that other people are able to find Trek Untold and give it a listen. And if you're a member of this audience who has already done one or several of those things already, thank you so much for your support. And if you haven't had a chance to do any of those things yet, we still thank you very much for choosing to listen today to Trek Untold. There's a ton of other Star Trek podcasts out there, and there's only so many hours in the day, so we really do appreciate you choosing this one to check out for the time we're spending with you now. I'd also like to make a quick shout-out to our sponsor at Triple Fiction Productions, who makes some amazing 3D-printed Star Trek-inspired dioramas and props for both Star Trek action figures and Star Trek fans in person. Whether you're a cosplayer or a toy collector, there's plenty of stuff to check out from Triple Fiction Productions, but you're going to hear a little bit more about them later on. So without further ado, let's begin this week's episode. Computer, access interview file. And welcome back to Trek Untold, and now joining us on the other side of the screen, you may recognize him from his appearances in Star Trek, or at least one of those three, because two of them, not so much. Uh, He's done a lot of work in Star Trek, and he's done plenty of things on screen and off as well behind the lens. So we're talking today with Mr. John Putch. John, how are you today? I'm very good. Thanks for having me. I should have asked where we started. Is it Putch or uh, how do you, is there a no, you got to say it? it right. I got it right. First try. Look, my side of the family, we, we uh, pronounce it Putch, but my Pittsburgh relatives, they all say Putch, which I don't understand because it's an Italian derivation. The name was Pucci originally and it was changed uh, to Putch on Ellis Island. And I don't know how they got Putch out of it, but we say Putch in show business. Thanks. So, so punch it is. All right. So, John, let's kick off this interview the same way I like to start things with all my guests. And that's what's your earliest memory of Star Trek? Oh, well, I'll tell you, uh, that's a great question. I, um, I remember as a kid, uh, I lived in a rural uh, town in uh, Pennsylvania and we only had three channels and uh, one that could come in over the air- antenna. And one of which was the channel that carried uh, Star Trek. So, uh, we were riveted uh, every week uh, for all three seasons of that original show. I couldn't believe it. And then I just couldn't believe the colors. I couldn't believe the adventures. Uh, It was just an amazing thing for a a kid in the, you know, in the late sixties. And uh, you know, I've followed it along the the whole time. And uh, you know, whenever it's on TV, I can't shut it off. I, I just, I'm stunned. I just can't stop watching it. I love the corny, hammy Shatner stuff. Who, And by the way, he continued that trend in his life, which uh, I think is a compliment. <laughs> He's very entertaining. And uh, I just loved, uh, I don't know, it was just, uh, its I can't turn it off when it's on. And then I was lucky enough to get on the show later. So let's talk a little bit more. You just kind of talked a little about uh, some of your backstory, but tell us a little bit about uh, where you grew up, who your parents were. I know who one of them was and uh, what you wanted to be when you grew up. Well, uh, I grew up uh, in South Central Pennsylvania. My father uh, uh, ran and op- he operated a summer stock, legitimate summer stock theater, and he was the uh, artistic director. And it was him, me, my sister, and my mom. And uh, early on, he threw us on stage, and um, uh, mom worked there as well. And then uh, she hit it big on a TV series in the early '70s called All in the Family, and uh, that would be Gene Stapleton. And uh, when we start returning to do the plays at Totem Pole, all of a sudden, just the audience is just smashed through the doors. And we had sellouts all the time because they wanted to see mom. And uh, but that's where I grew up my training as an actor. And, uh, you know, and I ran the follow spot and parked cars and all that stuff. And that's where I came from. And then as we transitioned to California for half the time, 
because uh, we'd come out and in the wintertime and be with mom while she did her show, I was introduced to television, uh, you know, when I was about 10 or 11 in terms of working on it or, or seeing it shot and everything. And, uh, and then, uh, you know, the, I, I sort of got into the business out here, but always in the summers, we'd head back to Pennsylvania and do theater. So how involved were your parents in your acting education? Well, I, I credit them with any education I had in it. I had no formal training until uh, high school when I went, was in the drama class. Uh, and then, uh, of course, then in college. But prior to that, you know, he, he stuck me on stage at age five, my dad. And um, I just sort of learned by watching all the other great actors that, you know, were at this theater. And uh, it was funny uh, because a lot of my uh, technique came from, you know, learning from these great theater people that did comedies and farces and, you know, and dr- not much drama at that theater, musicals and all that stuff. And I kind of learned everything there. When I got on television uh, as a young man or a kid, uh, I was way over the top. I, I was I was playing to the back of the house and you don't do that in TV. You literally um, you just need to convince the other person in the scene what you're saying. You don't need to telegraph it to, you know, 50 feet back to the back row, which is what you do in in theater or did then. So I had a big and no one ever told me, hey, hey, dial it down, John. This isn't theater. I had to figure it out on my own. And I believe that is the reason even my parents didn't do it. Uh, I believe that is the reason why early in my career, I did nothing but uh, sitcoms and, uh, you know, broad comedies as an actor, uh, because I sort of fit in, you know, cause you could be that large. And, uh, and it wasn't until I was in, you know, like, I guess my early twenties when I, I, I started paying attention to other, other actors on television. I go, that person's not doing anything. I, I should try that. And I started trying that at my next auditions and I started getting, dramatic parts. And uh, that's when I figured it out. So completely self-taught, you know, I, when I went into acting school at USC for the brief year, I was there, I I was already acting on television on a show called one day at a time. And I had already done like, you know, 15 or 16 plays, you know, and so I I was already kind of working. So I had developed uh, a technique, so it was it was hard for me to change it, and uh, so I can't. You know, I, I look back on my acting days. This that that was fun. I really lucked out, and uh, you know, muddled through that that profession. Uh, what I really was good at was you know making movies, and then that that paid off later. It's kind of interesting because you're basically picking up all these instincts that a lot of actors don't get till much later on in life. And you're just getting this real crash course thrown into things. And uh, that's that's pretty amazing. That's quite a gift to get. Yeah, I uh, I appreciate what what I went through. Uh, <laughs> and I also am co- well aware of the luck factor and the who, you know, factor, because uh, I would never have appeared on uh, my first show, which was all in the family, in, unless I was in my mother's dressing room after a taping on a Friday night and the casting director walked by and said, Hey, how would you like to play a boy scout next week's show? And I was like, what mom, can I, you know, and then that's, that's what started it for me in a same, same Z's was how I got onto one day at a time because I, as I grew up as a young man, I was in high school, 
the same casting director walks by one night and goes, Hey, do you want to read for a part on one day at a time, you know, for next week? And I go, yeah. And, uh, and I read for a role and, and I got it cause I got a laugh. And, uh, I, that's how I ended up, you know, coming onto that show. They just kept bringing me back cause they liked the character who was, uh, this innocent klutzy guy named Bob who was in love with Valerie Bertinelli. And I, you know, I, I was on that show over six years, like, I don't know, 13, 14 times. So, you know, luck, I, I'm, I'm telling you. And then it wasn't until after that, that like, I literally got a real agent and was able to go out on auditions for complete strangers. Um, well, they were strangers before, but, you know, really without any, you know, nobody knew who I was or anything. So I was really, you know, out there in the dark, feeling out how, how you go about it. And uh, I got pretty good at it and I did okay in the eighties. Um, but I'm sure I'm glad I don't do it anymore because I do not want to learn all those lines. I really don't, which reminds me of a story on next generation. When we get to that, <laughs> I'll tell you about that. Yeah, we've got a little bit of ways to get to our Star yep. Trek talk because there's so much more to talk about. You've had, even just as a young kid, you had a lot going on in terms of acting, and you're around all this royalty. You're around Carol Connor, you're around Sally Struthers, mm-hmm. Rob Reiner, yeah. uh, of course, Norman Lear. You know, he's basically the godfather of sitcoms in a lot of ways. He's really managed, mm-hmm. made so many amazing works. What's it like just being around all these people? I mean, as a young kid, did you really appreciate or understand that you're around these kind of like well known names? No, because at the time, well, I knew. When the show was red hot, yes, we were all aware of how, you know, big it was and how famous everybody was. Uh, You know, when you're interrupted at dinner out with your family, like three, four times in one seating by people who want pictures and autographs of mom, you realize, whoa, this is huge. But during the uh, time that I lived it with uh, that being mom's job, um, no, it was, they were, that was mom's work family and we were included. And, uh, my father and my sister, we would all be greeted warmly and we all knew each other by name. We would go to Norman's house. We'd go to Carol's house. We loved Sally. Uh, you know, Rob was funny and friendly. Didn't know him that well. Uh, but worked for him late in later years on one of his, uh, first films or second or third film. And, um, but you know, they were just sort of your 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 mom's uh, work friends, and um, you know, I had a relationship with Norman for years. I mean, we had shared the same birthday, and you know, for many years, we would try to call each other first on our birthdays and see who could beat the other one till I gotcha. And you know, that thing didn't stop. It in, in fact, it picked up again, like about I don't know five six years ago and we started doing it and he was going, oh, I'm so glad to, to talk to you. And, you know, of course he was the first person we, uh, my sister and I called when my mom passed, we needed his advice on what to do, when to release the news. And we wanted him to know. And, uh, my father had already passed away at the time. So, you know, it was like, really, there was like kind of, he seemed to be the most important guy to call first, but yeah, it was, it was pretty fun. And I got to, you know, the other shows that were all under the same roof, you know, at one time, uh, Norman moved all the shows. He moved all in the family. Um, Maud, uh, I'm not sure if Jefferson's was on yet or not. Um, one of them, Mary Hartman, maybe. I don't know. He moved them all from CBS Television City 
in Hollywood. He moved them all to the KTTV studios, which was the local channel 11. And it was a television studio on uh, Sunset Boulevard or Hollywood Boulevard. And it had like, I don't know, must have had six or seven stages. Do you know about this? I don't think I know much about that, no. Okay. Well, anyway, it, it was like a local news affiliate, but it was a full-on studio. He took it over, basically. He had All in the Family, the Jeffersons, Maud, Good Times. Uh, and and then, and then somewhere in there, uh, Facts of Life got in. We don't know how they made it in there, but they were the loan show that wasn't his. And they were next door to us. Oh, One Day at a Time was there. Uh, so you had all of them. And what I was going to say is, is I got to know Sherman Hemsley, who played George Jefferson. And it, it was like a, it was like a fun, theatery, college like, campusy feel with all these incredible hit shows that all had spun off from All in the Family at this one studio. And when you'd go to, and I happened to be on One Day at a Time at, at the time. So I, down the hallway was mom on her show rehearsing and shooting and Sherman and his group was down the hall. And, you know, when I, you'd see them in the hall and they, you know, you'd stop and they'd hug you and you'd say hi and all that stuff. And, and it was quite a, you know, you look back on it and you just go that, that was really fun and really unique. And I'm, you know, I'm so glad I got to be a part of it. I'm wondering if you happen to have any stories about uh, B. Arthur or Sherman. We mentioned Sherman, but are there any like yeah. little memories you have any of those people that you can share with us today? Yeah, uh, Sherman was always a friend to me. And whenever I'd see him in the hall, I'd go, Johnny, Johnny Potch, you know, he'd go out of his way to take me into the his show and, you know, introduce me to people. And and, and then years later, uh, you know, I didn't see much of him for many years. And then years later, he's I'm doing I'm directing one of the American Pie movies up in Vancouver. And one of the things that I pitched was let's have all these cameo roles be stunt cast by all these seventies and eighties icons, you know, and they, they bought it and Sherman came up and did uh, played this really funny uh, priest in a, in a church who, you know, drops the F bomb. And he, I got to have a reunion with him. I got to have dinner with him and I, and I got to shoot one day with him and take pictures with him. And we kept in touch and, uh, and then like, boom, all of a sudden he's gone. You know, one day he's, he's passed and I go, Oh my God, I just talked to him six months ago. And he asked me if I was doing anything and if he could work on it. And I'm just like, breaks my heart, you know, uh, love that. I got that time with Sherman B loved B. Uh, I went to grade school with her son, Matthew and Daniel, and I still am friends with Matt today. And uh, we're in touch a lot because we were both children of, you know, television actresses that basically led the same life. They were at the Emmy Awards every year. They were on really high ranked comedies. They were, uh, you know, they were highly treasured characters in uh, television. So um, I had a great time with B and uh, her son. And um, I love B because... Uh, when I was at Television City visiting mom at all in the family, I'd be walking down the big halls there where all the sound stages are. It's like a big cavern, like a barn hallway, like the size of a Costco. Okay. And then on each side, you are just rows of giant elephant doors. This is at Television City, still that way. It's where Red Skelton taped. It's where Carol Burnett taped. It's where uh, uh, Match Game 
you know, in the seventies taped, you know, it was a big Glenn Campbell show, all the, all the big shows. Anyway, uh, you'd walk down the, the, these halls and all the set pieces from all these shows would be in there. And, uh, you know, I was walking down, I wanted to say hi to B cause I was on the, you know, I was visiting mom that week or something. So I go down and I, I go to the, the, the giant scene door that lets you into the big stage, which they close when they shoot Bill Macy, who played Walter, you know, the husband is standing there shooting the shit with, uh, some, somebody. And, uh, I, I'm, I'm walking past him to go look for B and he goes, he goes, Oh, hold on. What are you doing? I go, I, I came to see B. He goes, well, who are you? What do you, you can't just walk in here. I go, I, 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 you know, I'm this little fat kid and I'm like getting scared by Bill Macy. And then from behind a la mod in a booming voice, <laughs> you hear B say, Bill, let John Putch pass through, please. And he went, you know, Bill Macy and, uh, go ahead, you know, and I, and I ran past him and be, you know, hugging B and, you know, you know, I was a kid anyway, that's a, that's a funny story, but she was a great lady too. And we laughed a lot, uh, with, with her as well. So it was pretty fun. I had some good, good stories in that era growing up. Uh, and I remember a lot of them. Um, and then I have a, a ton, a ton more as I made my way through, through my weird checkered career, you know, of my own. During these formative years when you're just on these sets, uh, you know, I know you're doing the acting thing at this point, but are you thinking about directing at all? Is that something that's coming to you as a child? Yeah, because uh, in early in, uh, I guess in grade school, my dad gave me a Super 8 camera and he he was a, a eight millimeter guy, as all parents were in the 60s. For those who don't know this, there were no video cameras and there were no, there was nothing. There was snapshot cameras and there was eight millimeter and sometimes even 16 millimeter and you would buy the cartridges or the spools you'd put them in your camera and that's what you shot your home movies with okay so dad he's a director and a and a and a funny man he's constantly making videos or videos he's constantly making films starring my sister and i in them and creating little stories he would edit them together he would make a soundtrack on an audio tape and he would we'd on and when he'd get it all finished we'd all gather in the living room on some night and he would show the film and it was the best thing ever and it was great entertainment and uh he was such an entertainer especially to his family and that's where i picked it up and then one day i'm in grade school he gives me this camera and he goes here uh play with this for a while and then the school the very progressive hollywoody grade school that i was sent to that <laughs> <laughs> that was that predated crossroads of those who know what that is um had a filmmaking class on every friday in my class so i like learned how to edit there uh splice film and all that stuff and we would make films all over campus and matt Sachs, who was b arthur's son uh was there too and we you know we all did the same thing so he gives me that camera and then you know years go go by and he gives me another camera when i'm a teenager and he says, you need to call your friends and go go make some movies on the weekend. And I'm sure he get, wanted me to do this to stay out of trouble. And uh, so he gave me another camera and, and me and I met some Super 8 nuts in junior high and high school. And we started making kid, you know, Super 8s. And they were huge. I mean, big, 
you know, I, I, I did a Batman and Robin spoof uh, in Super 8 with sound and sound effects and a separate, you know, soundtrack. I did a, we did a Harry Dirt, uh, Dirty Harry spoof. We did a Star Wars spoof where we built cockpits and pretended to be in the Millennium Falcon. This stuff's available online, by the way. I'm just saying. And, <laughs> and it's hilarious. And we would take, you know, we'd take the script from Get Smart, which was another one of our favorite shows. We'd take the jokes and we'd like steal them and put them into our script and just so we could hear ourselves. And then, and then you'd take the movie around at school the following year and show it in the classrooms and get out of class by, by doing that. We literally solicited all the classes and said, Hey, we have a movie. We shot it at school. Can we come show it in, in class? Yeah. And they book it and you get out of your other classes to go, Hey, the guys that show the movie. So literally we, we, we used it as a way to get out of doing work. And we also, we also did a bunch of, instead of writing a final paper for history class or government or whatever, we would make, we'd, we'd make a movie. And um, it usually in, in was just the bare minimum what you're supposed to know about the subject. But somehow we passed because we got, you know, we got we got the A for, for effort. So that's how I got involved in making movies. And I got really serious about it, you know, towards the end of high school and as I was moving into college. And, uh, and I knew I had to graduate to a real short film and a real 16 millimeter and have a real, you know, all that stuff. So my efforts were spent in the late seventies, early eighties in trying to do that. And, uh, I used my acting money to make a bunch of short subjects, all 16 millimeter. And, um, they were expensive then. And, um, and by the third time, uh, the third one, I kind of got it right. Um, and uh, good enough that I was able to use it to say, "Hey, I'm I'm a director. Will you hire me?" And and it's it's you know that was a, a hard road to get into TV. It took ten years to get into TV, but it only took one day on a basketball court with somebody who made low budget movies to say, "Yeah, can you do this kids movie in twelve days?" And I say, "Yes," and um, and that's how I got started with 35 millimeter and, you know, real directing, uh, great training ground. I worked for Andrew Stevens, the former actor and big shot Hollywood producer. And, uh, he, he came out of Corman and, uh, he created his own empire in the eighties with direct to video stuff, famous direct to video stuff. And, uh, he, he had a machine and a factory going and all he cared about was, could I bring it in? You know? Uh, uh, at this level or at this this many days and of course i wasn't going to say no i can't so that's how that's how it started uh and i was able to use those to get move into you know legit tv which like i said took took me 10 years today it doesn't take people that long at all different world today yeah very different different world yep so recently we had on billy van zandt one of our guests on trek untold and we talked about his appearance in jaws 2 and I guess I'm going to have an oral history of the Jaws films because uh, you were in Jaws 3D, right? That's right. That's right. So, yeah, that was with Dennis Quaid, Louis Gossett Jr., Leah mm-hmm. Thompson. Uh, you know, Jaws Dennis 1 was like, the big blockbuster. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Jaws Jaws 2, maybe not quite as much. Jaws 3D, now we're getting to gimmick territory here. Oh. Uh, yeah, but what do you remember about working on Jaws 3? Well, it was a fantastically gimmick movie. <laughs> it was the worst one until 4 came out, you know? And but I got to tell you, I loved it. I loved being a part of that. 
I have such great stories and memories and the people on it work so hard. So when I say it wasn't a good one, it's not to knock anybody on it. It's just, you know, it just was one of those things. It was, it was just turned out the way it turned out, but, uh, had a great time on that. I was like 20 years old. I, I thought my life was going to change and uh, <laughs> it, it didn't really, but uh, I got, you know, I got to work with all those people and got to know them. I still am in touch with direct the director, Joe Alves, sweetheart. He just put a book out. It's incredible about, about his, with his drawings and his, cause he was a huge is still, and was a great production designer. Uh, Joe Alves, who directed John, he was, he did the production design on the first two movies. He also did close encounters. He also did star man. He also, you know, he's, he's a big shot, um, huge. And, uh, I'm still in touch with him today. And he's so he's, he does a lot of appearances and, uh, sweet guy. And, um, I'm in touch with a, a bunch of people from that show. So it was a great time. You were, I just remind you, because I haven't seen Jealous 3D in quite some time. I might keep it that way. But uh, does your character survive? I think he does, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. They shipped me off early. Once once Leah got bit in the bumper boat scene, you know, and I pull her out of the water, um, we, they put us in an ambulance. And then that's the last you see of us, those two characters. They're, they're gone to the hospital. And the rest of the movie, they're, you know, they're underwater fighting a shark that has a really bad green screen key you know, as it approaches the camera, which is fun to say, because here we are now with green screens in 2020. And uh, this is probably way better than Jaws 3D still. Well, look, there's no green screen behind me aside from <laughs> that little, you know, aberration around our heads looks pretty good. I mean, this, this line on the, on the black shirt is in crazy that there's no green screen to key that it's just, it's a weird, it's amazing. It's fun watching like older sci-fi films, especially because like, you know, I do a lot of chroma key stuff on videos I do for my YouTube channel. And I was looking at stuff I see, you know, from the 70s or 60s. I'm like, man, we're doing the things that cost them millions back then yep. at a fraction of the cost. It's just kind of amazing yep. to think about. It's it is truly amazing what you can do. I you know, I have a bagged green screen in my garage. I use it. I'll pull it out all the time for stuff. Trek Untold will return momentarily. Trek Untold is brought to you by Triple Fiction Productions. If you're a Star Trek cosplayer looking for props or toy collector looking to spice up your shelves, Triple Fiction Productions has you covered. Triple Fiction Productions produces affordable and unique 3D printed Trek inspired products from the original series Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, Voyager, Enterprise, and the movies. You can expect the same amount of care and attention to detail in any of the items in their catalog whether it's a prop replica for use in a fan film, or a part of a cosplay, or accessories and playsets for figures from Playmates, Migos, or Diamond Select. Own your very own tricorder or phaser rifle with working lights, the bridge of the Enterprise E for your Playmates figures, or any other item from countless species and ships from the Star Trek universe. All products are 3D printed in the USA, and are constantly evolving and improving based on fan feedback. To learn more about their products, visit them at triple-fictionproductions.net or on Facebook at facebook.com slash triplefictionproductions. Triple Fiction Productions, taking Star Trek where no 3D printer has gone before. Hello, everyone. I'm Armin Shimmerman. Perhaps you know me better as Quark from Deep Space Nine. As your favorite Ferengi, I'm here to promote a sale. It's not self-sealing stem bolts, but my new novel. 
Valeria. And the first book is called The Betrayal of Angels. Some of you may not know that aside from being an actor, I'm also a novelist. My newest novel is a mystery set in 1583. Its heroes are the historical characters of John Dee, who was a spiritualist, a book collector, and a spy. With him is an unsuccessful playwright named William Shakespeare. Their mission is to investigate a nobleman who happens to be Count Orsino from Shakespeare's Twelfth Night. The book employs comedy, history, and fantasy to tell a page-turner of a story. It reads a lot like Sherlock Holmes or like one of my favorite shows, Homeland. Please check out my website at www.armandshimmerman, get the name right, .com, or you can get it directly from my publisher at www.jumpmasterpress.com. You can buy it either as a paperback, a hardback, or an ebook. So why don't you check it out and judge for yourself? Or better yet, give it as a gift to someone. I know they'll appreciate it. Uh, disclaimer. No Latinum except. We now return to Trek Untold. So, John, let's go ahead and beam up into our Star Trek discussion because we've got a lot to discuss today. So, your first time in the series was season one, Coming of Age, and you are Mordok, the first ever Benzite in Star Trek history. So, tell us uh, how you got cast for that role. Well, as a as an actor, you get to know casting directors and they have you in when you do good for them. And this casting director was Junie Lowry. I don't think she was Johnson yet, Junie Lowry Johnson. And uh, she cast that show. And um, I was one of her faves. Um, so I came in and read for that character. And my I think my Britishy theater acting worked pretty well, even though I wasn't British. I, I just had a very affected... I used a very affected voice. I, I read amongst so many people, but I got it. That's how it happened. And uh, it's because she knew me and said, you, look, we got to get John should come in and read. I had read for, I'd read for the pilot. I'd read for almost every episode. I mean, I would, I was at the Paramount lot constantly, me and I don't know, a dozen other actors and actresses you'd see every week who, you know, were all really, really good. And she was hoping you know, to work through all of them to get, to get on the show. And, and she did pretty much, I mean, all those people ended up doing, doing guest shots that she, that she brought in and it was her kind of stable of people. So very, very grateful for that, but it was really fun. Uh, then immediately you're sent to Paramount to see Michael Westmore to get your, your blue head cast made. So I had to do the whole, you know, lie back and they put the straws in your nose and, pour all the goop over your head. I mean, it was, it was quite, I couldn't do it today. I would be really, I'd feel like I was going to suffocate, but as a young guy, I felt okay. And I was into the, this kind of makeup technique. So it was very interesting for me. So yeah, did a head cast. Then they'd pour the molds later. They'd have me back like two, three days later. This is all during prep of another episode. So I made several trips down there and, you know, had to put, put all this stuff on and they, and then when they finally got it all made, it was like a, you know, I would have a, you know, a 3 a.m. call in order to be on set by seven. And uh, so I would show up at the lot, like, you know, when people were wrapping and going home from a long shoot of something else. And I'd walk across in the dark and there was Michael Westmore. I mean, at least on the first episode I did, who put, put me all together. And it took hours. I'd fall asleep 
And, uh, and then I couldn't eat all day. I had to use a straw and no one knew what I looked like. So I'd come on, I'd come on to set, Hey, you know, it's Johnny Frakes or Will Wheaton or, you know, anybody, they, they'd all look at me and go, Hey, John, how you doing? But none of them knew who the hell I was when I took the makeup off. I got out early one day and I, all the makeup, they, they take it off for you as well. And, uh, I was walking past Frakes and I go, Hey, Johnny, see you tomorrow. And he looked at me like, who the hell's that? And I go, it's, it's Putch, the blue headed, you know, guy on the show this week. He goes, Oh my God. You know? So, but most people did not, you know, I'd appear on, on stage already in this unrecognizable blue outfit. And, uh, it was very funny. And I went to the commissary one day to have lunch just to see what I could, you know, sip. And it was really funny walking around Paramount in the, in the late eighties because Star Trek was the king. The, uh, you know, next generation show was pretty much the king there. And there were like aliens and, you know, Federation Starfleet outfits. Uh, it, it was like a, like that movie, uh, the Tim Allen movie, uh, galaxy quest, right? It, it was exactly like that. It was like going to a convention. It was pretty fun. And, um, you know, and I beat, I beat, uh, Will Wheaton. I beat Will Crusher. I got into Starfleet Academy over him. He did, but he did help you out. We can't, uh, can't ever forget that part there. <laughs> he did help me out. That's right. Uh, do you get to spend a lot of time with the other guest stars? I mean, that was mentioned. You did the scene with Will Wheaton, but Robert Edel was also in that. Uh, Taja Valenza was in that and, uh, mm-hmm. SD Chandler. Did you guys hang out much offset? Uh, I was with Taja and uh, Will mostly because that's all who I, all my stuff was with. So that's who I remember. The second time around when I was the other character, I, I spent a little more time with the other the other folks. And being that this is season one of TNG, this is now the rebirth, if you will, of Star Trek. And being someone that watched it as you grew up, what did you think about the new sets? Uh, did you... Had you actually watched any episodes of TNG yet? Like, I don't know if it had premiered by the time you did this episode, but uh, what do you think of the new look of Star Trek? I totally was. I was at the edge of my seat the, the night it aired, and uh, I couldn't believe it was on a you know an uh, you know the not a main network. It, it was the first time I was going, wow, this is a number you know big show on a local channel is what it was out here, you know, an affiliate. Anyway, um, I. I, I thought it was, uh, it looked to, at the beginning to me, it looked real video-y, you know, the space stuff and, uh, you know, all, all that, all this, the exteriors of the ships and stuff. It looked, looked kind of video-y, but, um, I was, I was way into the whole thing. Um, it didn't take long to get used to it. I was just, you know, you're in shock when you watch the first one, uh, you know, really, if you're if you're expecting it to be anything like the old one, and uh, and but then there were some dazzling, you know, digital effects that you know we'd never seen before, which was pretty cool. But yeah, loved it. Was hooked. Watched them all. So you returned in season two again as a Benzite, but this time as Mendon. And I heard the reason they brought you back was because they literally just wanted to cut some costs here, and they're like, "Well, he already got the makeup done, so let's bring him back." Is is that true? <laughs> You just took my story away. Yeah. <laughs> I ruined the whole thing. You can tell it better. Go ahead, please. No. Yeah. And I got the call to come back and I was like, oh my God, they love me. I did so good. I get to do it again. And I went back thinking, you know, this was, you know, and I had played a whole different character. I got to wear a Starfleet uniform with the girdle. I got to wear a girdle, you know, what, what all the guys wear on that show. And uh, I had the 
communicator and the, the whole out, you know, it was, it was fantastic. I looked slim and, uh, and I was just so happy to be there. And then I realized, you know, as I, as I became a director years later and I was aware of budgets and, and schedules and, and the, and what you do to make things easier, I realized they didn't call me because they thought it was great. They got, they had the mold already in the head made for me. Who else are they going to call? They're not going to spend whatever it costs to make another one for some other actor. They're going to get me. So they wrote, you know, let's get the guy, you know, get, get, get that guy that played the blue head. We'll, we'll just use that again, you know, cause every week there was an alien. So, so yeah, that's, I've, that's my story. And, and that's what I say anytime I'm interviewed because it has to be true. No, there, there's no, no one has like confirmed that, but I'm here to tell you as a filmmaker and a director and a, you know, and a producer, I know exactly, I would do the same exact thing and I would just rewrite the script to, you know, have it, you know, explain why it's, you know, a different guy, pretty funny, you know, but it just goes to show you how actors, when you're not, actors can be so self-absorbed and myopic about, you know, how they fit into the whole puzzle. And um, because they're constantly insulated from everything, you know, they're literally just coddled and moved about and, you know, given things and told how great they are and everything. And they really don't, no one's ever said, Hey, come over here. I want to show you how this camera works or this light or this dolly. Let me show you this special effect. No one ever does that. So consequently, unless you're curious, like someone like me, you're, you're never going to know that stuff. So you, you can only imagine everything is about you. <laughs> so, so I understand. I, I, I understand how I didn't realize that at the time. And on that same kind of topic, uh, you know, again, we're talking about you being the director. Were you talking to the directors or watching what they were doing, picking up any notes on how they were making a show happen? Yeah, because I was, you know, I was like two, three years removed from my first short film and I was planning my next. And uh, on the both those, uh, the first uh, episode was Michael Vihar, uh, who was, just, you know, he's a TV directing titan. And I also did a, um, a, a pilot with him for Disney called Double Agent with Michael McKeon. And uh, I played his sidekick and I got to be with Michael again, or maybe it was the reverse. Might have been the reverse. I might have done Star Trek second. No. Anyway, uh, Michael Michael was great. Uh, that guy was really efficient and simple and helpful. You know, I, I always watch. I mean, from from the day one I got onto a set, I never left it. I you know when they say we don't we need you in half an hour, I don't leave. I just sat there and watched and noticed, and you know I was into the gear and the tech and all that stuff. Second episode I did was uh, Matter of Honor. It was directed by Rob Bowman, the great Rob Bowman, who went on to you know X Files fame, if you know that guy. And uh, he was really cool, uh, young, young at the time, you know, young, young hotshot. And he was, uh, he was, he had a whole different manner. He he was he was a little more casual, relaxed, and you know, his uh, he was helpful. Um, he also did a you know fantastic job as well. Uh, but you know, I wasn't time in the days because I was in torture under that mask. I just wanted to get get the hell out of there, take that shit off before you reach up and like pull it off your off yourself. I wonder how they do it today. If they would, if I'm sure the techniques have improved. Um, 
less pieces probably. It's probably still just as torturous though to get it all done. Yeah, probably. Uh, but yeah, I was I paid close attention to that stuff. Always did, and uh, I was very fascinated by the uh, effects. So I, I spent a lot of time walking behind the sets and looking at stuff and how they built things and all that that kind of thing. And that was pretty wondrous. And uh, you know, I knew I was on the second Star Trek show, so I didn't. I, I took full advantage of looking at everything I could as best I could and looking at, and I'd walk over across to the next stage and look at a set that they were building for another episode. And I would just be just amazed. It's pretty cool. Just on that topic of them bringing you back to play this Benzai character again. Do you think it was an inside joke when Wesley said, you look a lot like Mordok? Is that them kind of acknowledging that it's the same actor behind the mask or is that just kind of just happenstance? Oh no, I think that was intentional. I don't know if it was uh, because it was supposed to be me, but I did look the same. And uh, so he had to say something. Otherwise, people would go, wait a second. He just, why doesn't he say anything? You know, so they, they wisely, you know, referenced it. And we had that exchange where I say, no, no, I'm, I'm Mendon or whatever the, whatever my name was. Was it Mendon in the second one? Yeah. You're Lieutenant. Mendon in the second. Yep. Mendon in the second. You're Mordock in the first. It's confusing. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I'm a trading card. I'm a, pl- I'm an action figure, which I have a signed action figure from Michael Westmore. And, uh, you know, the package is signed by him. And uh, I'm in the encyclopedia, apparently, as the only Benzite and the actor to play a Benzite of two different, two different characters of the same species. That's true. Yeah. As far as I know, I think the only other person to wear the Benzite makeup was Hillary Shepard. And she was like the first female Benzite. Is that so, right? I, I don't think that. there's too many. Yeah. She was in Deep Space Nine. Uh, oh, that's why. Yeah. They said... Oh, of course it did. And they probably went, we like that, how that looked. Let's, let's have, let's do this again on a gal, you know, <laughs> let's bring a Benzite back. <laughs> I'm glad you mentioned your action figure. I'm a big action figure collector myself and I love getting guests on who have figures of themselves. Uh, so in your case, you know, you have a Benzite. It's not exactly your likeness, but what no. do you think of this action figure? And, you know, I, I want to ask if it looks like you and if you like the representation of it, but you know, it's not exactly John Putch. <laughs> oh no, you. Uh, but I'm not John Putch when I'm in that outfit. I'm, I'm, I'm this I'm who am I? I'm no, you can't, it's not me. It's my voice. I look nothing like me. I mean, some people will recognize the voice and maybe, maybe recognize the mouth, you know, people close to me, but no, it doesn't look a thing like me. No, it's a little action figure. That's a caricature of, you know, that, that outfit really. Uh, I don't think it's supposed to look like me. I mean, if I was a humanoid, I guess I would, you know, then be, able to answer that question but no i'm luckily just you know was a monster basically or an alien sorry a benzite <laughs> right, that's right yeah <laughs> now i've got a super nerdy observation for you i'm wondering if you got an answer for this one now so okay. i noticed that in your first appearance you know mendon's a breathing device it's got some illuminations on it so in your first appearance it's a really bright red and yellow light uh, whereas when you come back this time around, it's just a white and it's a lot softer. Do you remember that at all? Do you remember why? I mean, I don't want to ask if you remember why they changed the colors, but do you remember the colors and the lights and that being distracting for you or, or anything about that at all? I don't remember the color change, but I'll tell you probably why they did that. It's probably because the prop a genius uh, was tinkering around with improving it for the next time. And I'm sure in their mind, they go, ah, this looks better with white because the smoke, you can see the smoke better if you use white, if you use white light, a soft, soft LED white light, whereas the colored stuff, you probably didn't see the smoke puff as well. And um, that's my guess, knowing 
if it were me and I had to do it again and I looked at it like that, but I don't, there wasn't any con. I, I wasn't told of anything like in a story sense, why it was different. I'm sure they were improving it, but they didn't improve having to drop dry ice crystals into a little tray and me having to keep my head up high enough. So you don't dip forward too far. So you could actually see inside, you know, that what was, you know, to blow the cover of that. It's a bunch of ice crystals. And I was constantly being asked to like puff while I was talking. I'm going, well, I can't puff while I'm talking, but I can maybe do it in between. Cause there's this tray like right here. And I'm having to say this inordinately complicated jargony speech and then go with my nose, you know, blow air out of my nose or my mouth so no one would see it. So, so the dry ice would like puff and it became, it was really difficult to do. And they weren't going to do that with CG. I don't think they had CG, good CG smoke then. So that was a constant effort for me was to try to work that into like speeches and sentences. Uh, I'd usually cock my head and try to do it, you know, at the end of a speech or at the beginning of a speech, but it was really hard to do almost as hard as the dialogue they gave me in matter of honor. <laughs> oh my God. You had a lot to work with in matter of honor. I mean, that was a much beefier role than Mendon was. Mordok gets to say more. He gets to be on the bridge with all the key cast members this time. Uh, and best of all, he's just like such a smug jerk. I love, like, he really did a lot with him. I really enjoy that character a lot. Having just rewatched it, I forgot how much I enjoy this Benzite. That was fun. That was fun because I got on their nerves. I got, I pissed them off. And then I love it. Picard, you know, got to dress me down. He yelled at me. And when people say, who were you? And, the, you know, I go, I was the blue headed guy that Picard yelled at in Manner of Honor. They go, oh my God, I remember that. So it was really fun. And I remember Patrick Stewart at the time was just, starting to um, do the Apple commercials, the Apple two or the Apple lease. I don't know what it was, but he was, he was doing some Apple, you know, big contract. And I was talking to him about that because I had, I was an Apple guy since 84 and uh, I got to fart around with Michael Dorn, greatest guy ever, sweet guy. Uh, you know, Brent, I knew I, I, I got to know Brent, uh, Spiner. And then years later, I was, you know, I didn't work with him again, but we've kept in touch and we have a lot of mutual friends. Johnny Frakes, love that guy. And, you know, as directors, we used to, uh, we used to text each other on different shows all the time. Um, great, great reunion with him. I was supposed to see him back East this uh, summer, but then the pandemic happened. Uh, he also has a place in the East. Uh, those guys were great. I remember Marina was uh, so smitten with Rob Bowman, the director uh, on that episode that I, I watched a whole like romance in her mind uh, start, you know, and end uh, in, in eight days. Um, who else? Uh, I didn't really. Um, yeah, those were the dudes and uh, and Will, you know. I haven't talked to Will in years. I don't, I'm, I assume he would remember me or recall me, but that guy's a, that guy's salt of the earth, that guy. So we got to get freaks to get you to direct an episode of discovery. I'd love to. Why is he on discovery? He's directed a few. Yeah. I think he directed oh, also uh, one or two of Picard as well. Oh, he's good. I, I wish I could, I want to see Picard, but I, I refuse to pay CBS all access another dollar. So uh, I want to see that. I heard it was coming. I'd love to do that show. It's right up my alley. I mean, I'm so good with effects. It's part of the best thing I do.
And, uh, but you know, I don't know. You, that's a click. You got to really, it's hard to get in, you know, really hard to get in. So you have one last appearance in the Star Trek franchise, and that is in Star Trek Generations. You're a reporter. Uh, in fact, you're the one who stands behind Captain Kirk for a lot of it. You're also following around Scotty here and there. Uh, I just watched it, in fact, and I was like screenshotting all the times you appear on screen. Uh, so, yeah, tell us about Star Trek Generations. because That's that's pretty crazy, too. It, it go from basically the TV show to the movie and just how many more extras they shoved into that scene in particular. It's just like yeah. so much going on in that one scene. Well, I had I had a couple scenes. Uh, I had one in the later and i don't know if it was cut out i think some of it was cut out but junie lowry johnson who cast the tv show wanted to bring all of the guest actors back and put them in the small parts in in the movie because clearly they're aware of the fan base and the history and they like you know they're good they're they're good about that and they want to bring this you know these people back she begged me to do the little part of the, you know, the guy with the camera on his head, the reporter and my buddy, Tommy Hinckley, who played the guy with the sound, the microphone. He was my, we were there together a lot. He was on some start uh, uh, next generation show as well. So, so me and Tommy, and we knew each other for years. We, we were basketball buddies. Um, we, we were on the bridge for that opening sequence you know when shatner was there and scotty and walter and you know check off and scotty and and shatner uh and alan ruck so i got cast she said oh you got to do it everyone's doing it all the all the people are like okay all right what was great for me was i i i didn't have to be talked into it i just you know wanted to i wanted to be in it and see what was going on i wanted to get in the building basically it was pretty amazing it was like three or four days on the bridge uh, it might it might have turned into five, and uh, aside from all the you know they must have had I don't know thirty five extras that were just extras, and then there was me and Tommy because we had dialogue, and then there were a few other people that had dialogue, and you know they just you know we were we were pushed into the crowd. I got to see some amazing stuff. John Alonzo was the director of photography, and on the Panavision camera was a a perfectly a plaque of John Alonzo's movies, you know, that enlisted them. They were on the camera and <laughs> it was like a, he was a legend in his own time. And, you know, he was this little Italian guy with his little hat and everything. And, and he would, you know, he'd, he'd bark his commands to his guys. And I was looking at him, I was going, this guy did some big movies. And of course they're all escaping me, but they were big, like, like the Godfather big. You know, they were that he was that guy. And uh, well, he's done some huge movies and I apologize for not remembering them. So he's there and he's like, and I was watching him a lot and how he worked and he, he wanted to get the work done. You know, he wanted, he, he wasn't the guy that was wanting to sit around and feather the light, you know, and color everything. And he, he was literally going, are we going to admire it or shoot it? You know? And I'm like, going, I love this guy. This is it's the famous John Alonzo. So, he was there being his with his ego, which was really fun to watch. And then you had, you know, Shatner, you know, who walks in, you know, with basically a force field of ego. But what was amazing about it was it was, I think it was the first movie since the original movies, you know, the, the features that came out, I I think it was the first series where, you know, he appeared He's going to appear in another one as a guest. So he walks onto the stage, you know, and all the extras start applauding him. Okay. So he's already got, he's already got his audience, 
basically. And everybody stopped and, and he like said hello and everything. And then he, of course he said, well, it's good to be on the enterprise again. And of course it was looked completely different. And, uh, so he start, we start working with him and, um, <laughs> he, he had just written his book, um, you know, his, his memoir, the Star Trek memoir. And, uh, and you know, every, he's, He's not well liked by by his cast members, according to the book. And uh, and and James Doohan, uh did not like him that day or that week, and neither did Walter. And what was and I knew this because I had read the book, and I could tell they're they're no they're not talking to him, they're not hugging him, they're not shaking his hand, they're literally just you know like like this. And I'm going, wow, it's been it's like thirty years, okay, since they originally did the the original show, and like I'm looking at him and the and there they are. There's those three titans, and these two clearly hate that guy, and he has no idea, or he's just being, you know, himself, which is just so fun to watch. Oblivious, pompous guy, you know. And he'd done a bunch of television at that point. You know, he was T.J. Hooker already, and he, had, I think, I don't know if he had done the the he hadn't done Boston Legal yet, but he had just done Tech War, which no one remembers except for me. Tech War. Oh my God, I remember that. <laughs> And now there's so, two people who remember it. <laughs> so he's, it, there's so many good stories about him. So every day uh, I would just like try to memorize and record everything he did. And I would run home and tell my wife about it and call my sister and anybody would listen. I go, you're not gonna believe what happened today. So uh, the one, one day, like if you see this uh, behind me, there's the turbo lift right there. Well, there was one of those on the set and the, the scene called for the three of them to walk onto the bridge for the first time you know, before takeoff and Alan Ruck says, welcome aboard and la la la, you know, and he goes and sits down. So, uh, you know, those doors get opened and shut by a, a person. And, uh, so the doors open, you know, they go, okay, rolling and they get, you know, and they have to go in there, the three of them. And I like, I'm elbowing Tommy. I go, those guys hate him and they're going to have to go in that little booth and close the door until action is called. And, and there was a bunch of dialogue before the doors open. So, you know, there's Alan Rucks doing his bit and they're covering that. And then like, I'm not 10 seconds into the scene, you know, the door opens and the three of them walk in and then they do, you know, they go do their scene, they're greeting and all that stuff. And at, right before, you know, the take started, I would, I was Tommy and I were constantly looking into this, uh, door that you know they were in and and walter was like this against the wall and and jim jimmy doing was like was like this and uh shatner was you know he was you know well this is kind of fun and you know you know it's uh it's, it's kind of different to be here again you know they're not they're not even answering the doors close and then action is called and they're in there for you know they're baking together i just wanted to be inside that's all I wanted to know what was being going on in there. So <clears throat> that, that stuff happened all, all week. And um, then I had, a, I had to do stuff with him. You know, I had, I had literally had a scene with him. I talked to his character, but he treated me like an extra. So he, he, he thought I was, you know, and of course he has no idea that I'd been on a million television shows at that time. I was a working actor, you know, he didn't, he didn't know any of this stuff. But he treated, he treated me like an extra, which is really, I was, you know, mildly annoyed, but I was also like, I, I just was thinking, 
I can't wait to tell everybody this. This is the best thing ever. <laughs> William Shatner, Captain Kirk, he's, he thinks I'm a, a bit extra guy. There's a scene where he has to like cast me aside, you know, get that out of my face, you know, because I'm constantly doing this, you know, to bug him with the camera because I'm the camera shooting guy. And Tommy's down there sticking the mic in his face. And uh, <laughs> he, we do a, We do a rehearsal and he literally throws me into a light stand. He, he, he literally just the guys like, get that out of there. I'm not kidding. I was we were up on a platform and I'm I stumbled back and I almost knock over, you know, a baby par light or something or, you know, and or and and, and I literally I went up. I went up to him after I go, hey, Bill, I called him Bill because I, I refused to say Mr. Shatner. I said, listen, just put your hand on me. Let me do the work. OK, because you almost just I almost knocked the lamp over just now. He would not look at me. He like looked to the director and go, um, how can we make this work? I'm literally, and, and I'm literally going, I just told you how we can make it work. Um, let me do the, all the work. Just give me the motion of the hand. Isn't that what we do? Anyway, it was, it was infuriating. So the rest of the week, he was like, he would not talk to me. He would not acknowledge me. It was, it was the best thing ever. And then at the end, at the end, when he finished, He's, uh, you know, everyone stops and applauds. Ladies and gentlemen, that's William Shatner's last scene in the show. We want to thank him. And, you know, and everybody's down in the little circle that the one like I'm sitting in now. And, uh, you know, and he's up on the, you know, he's up on the, you know, the rail there. And uh, he's, you know, thank you. And, th you know, there's all this thing. And like everybody's out there applauding. A sea of people applauding. This is me. That's what I was doing. <laughs> I was just eyeballing the guy. It's fantastic. He didn't even see me, probably. But um, there was a, just stuff like that happened every day. And then one, one, there was a scene in the sh movie where um, he stands at the director's, the director's, he stands at the, the captain's chair with Alan Ruck. And he, he, you know, they have an exchange and, and Alan Ruck asks him to go take his seat. And he doesn't. And he, you know, he doesn't sit in the in the captain's chair on the Enterprise. He has to go sit along the rail, you know, with the rest of them. And uh, so they did that scene and everything. And like uh, a, 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 the next day, we're setting up to do a whole different scene. There's a crane hanging out in the middle of the set. There's like all this shit is doing. And and I was sitting down in you know this little pit area with Tommy, and I, I listened to Shatner say to David Carson, I think we missed something yesterday. And like, I'm immediately, I'm, I'm elbowing Tommy. I'm going, what's he going to say? He's, what's he going to do? And uh, he, uh, he said, um, I think we need to do the scene at the captain's chair again. I think I missed something. And David, who's British guy goes, Oh, really? Well, um, what, 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 what should, what should we miss? He goes, well, I really think I should have taken a moment with the captain's chair before, before, before I, uh, you know, before I release it and go and, um, me, I'm sitting there thinking, Oh my God, he's going to make us reshoot. We're going to be here forever. I'm going to get more overtime. This is fantastic. So, and David Carson said, yes. All right. I think we can work that in today. So during the day, at some point we set up to do that shot again. And I don't think you can see my, can you see my chair in this shot? Yeah. Okay, so I gotta 
get down here? Okay, see the chair. So he, he, they do the scene like this. I'm bent down because I'll, I'll disappear if I stand up. Okay. So he does the scene again. And right before he leaves, this is all he did. He wanted to reshoot because he wanted to fondle the chair. So you'll see him touch the chair like this, like that, and look forlornly at it. And then he goes off and takes a seat. And that's, I mean, that must have taken three hours to do. I can literally tell you, I was just rewatching the movie and watching that part. And I was like, it's like, he really did go out of his way to touch the chair. So I'm glad there actually is a story behind it. Cause he oh, it seems like he really wanted to do something with that chair. That's amazing that you picked up on that. Cause I never told you that story till now. No, I've never heard it before. I just, I just noticed like the way he did it, it seemed extra. It seemed so unnecessary. It, there, yep. there would have been such a more subtle way to do it, but it's Shatner. So no. <laughs> Pretty hammy. It's pretty hammy. And then, and then, uh, you know, there was like a, a, an explosion thing and we all had to do the Shatner as they say, you know, where we all had to pretend to like shift and the camera dutched and he was right over my shoulder on one of these, you know, where the railing is, you know, on the set, he was, uh, he was, he was, you know, and he did his usual, you know, and like, da-da, you know, and he'd like grab onto the railing while the railing broke free and, William Shatner flew over me and Tommy's head and fell right down in front of us. And like, everybody goes, Oh, you know, and he, 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 you know, he, he rolls, he goes, I'm all right. I'm all right. You know, and he got up and everybody was like, Oh my God, what happened? What happened? And you know, the, he, he, he broke the set <laughs> doing, doing his own, his own bit with the t- thing. So, oh my God, that was like a whole, that was two hours right there. <laughs> two hours. He went to the medic. Nothing's wrong. You know, everyone's around him. And then meanwhile, the grips are with screw guns, chains, you know, hacksaws. They were like attaching that rail, like within an inch of its life. It, there's nothing was going to move it, but a wrecking ball at that point, two hours. That was a good one. But it, I'd tell you, and every day that would something like that would happen. And I would go home and I go to my wife, you're not going to believe what happened today. And I call anybody who was a Star Trek fan. I'd call them, tell them that story, those stories. And it, uh, so, so fun. So fun. That just made Star Trek generations a lot better for me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and I did get to talk to, uh, James Dewan. Uh, he was a sweetheart. He's he he'd sit off set in his chair with the rest of us, uh, the rest of us cast. And I got a chance to talk to him and I did. I asked him, I said, what did you think of the book? He goes, oh, I haven't read it. And uh, I go, oh, he goes, I'm not going to read it. I go, okay. (laughs) He goes, my daughter told me, you know, they're about certain things in it and I don't need to read that. I had a, I had a chat with Walter. I actually asked him about it too. and, And he just rolled his eyes. (laughs) <laughs> oh man, those guys are great. And then Walt, Walter, you know, I didn't get to work with him, but he, he, uh, appeared on son of the beach, which was a show I directed. And, uh, he was on that show. And, uh, who else did I work with on stars? You run into everybody eventually, if you'd stay around long enough, you know, but that was fun. Yeah. I, I don't remember much about the movie. I do remember Alan Ruck, who became a friend and uh, love that guy. Good actor. Yeah, I think Alan Ruck's very underappreciated, I feel like. And not just from the Star Trek franchise, but in general, that guy just deserves a lot more credit than he gets. Oh, yeah. Okay. So, seminal. Come on. Ferris Bueller. Huge. Exactly. Yeah. Among other things. No, that guy's a good actor. Um, 
yeah, so that was my week on generations. And uh, oh, and then while I'm here on your show, may I just say that, in my opinion, all of the direct the, of all the directors of the movies that we've seen the feature films thus far, I would have to say that Leonard Nimoy and Johnny Frakes were the were were the 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 finest of all the directors of the films in my opinion they they were just superior and, and whether or not they just had better scripts or what it was who knows but um they just were great and i'm so i was so glad and, and uh so and john has had such a good career as a director i mean just quality knows his shit you know knows the ins and outs of every story knows how knows knows what it's like to be an actor knows what it's like to be a writer you know it's just Good guy. Good guy. Hats off to that guy. Let's talk a bit about your directing career because you've had, I think, uh, probably a bigger directing career than acting. And that's that's saying a lot because you've had a very long resume of acting roles as well. Uh, so I was trying to figure out, you know, what things I wanted to ask you about. And I'm looking at your resume and it's got Grounded for Life, which is a sitcom I really liked. Uh, you did the Tracy Morgan show. You directed an episode of My Name's Earl, uh, Cougar Town. You did a bunch of episodes of Scrubs, many other things. You know, I, I was going to ask you about Big Bad Beetleborgs, but I was like, you know, maybe I should ask him about Dick Van Dyke instead. Because uh, you did an episode of Murder 101. So, okay, tell us what it's like to work with the legend and to be directing Dick Van Dyke. That's got to be just intimidating. Oh, no, it wasn't. It, that guy is a, a sweetheart and uh, nothing to be afraid of. I mean, he's old school. He's he's an actor. He's not a he's not a celebrity. Uh, I met him when I was a young man. Uh, my mother did a movie called Cold Turkey with him in like 1970 something and before All in the Family or like in between pilots of All in the Family. And we went to we went to Des Moines, Iowa and visited the shoot. And I got to meet Dick. I have a, fo- a photograph, him, me and my sister. And uh, and then, boom, years later, I'm at this TV movie factory, you know, at Hallmark Channel, and uh, I'm coming off doing the Poseidon adventure for them. Um, and, um, uh, you know, I say, hey, you, you want you avail, you want to do this murder one I want to go? Yeah, I want to do that one because Dick and, and Barry. And so uh, he he was a delight. I mean, I don't know what, what else to say, because he'd done 100 years of diagnosis murder. Right. So he was and he's been on television all since we were born. So uh, the guy came in and did his job and was pleasant. And, you know, I offered him suggestions only to help him out. But I, I didn't have to direct that guy. You know, he was basically like, uh, watch, watch for me on this. Or, you know, did, did I get this right? Or and uh, I was just so happy to it was like working with a regular down to earth working actor. And what was fun was he didn't leave the set either. He stayed on the set in his chair and signed autographs. And there was a constant parade of kids and families coming up to him. And like, you know, you'd be setting up a shot and you'd, you'd hear something going, you'd hear singing and you'd turn, you'd look and he'd be singing Hushabye Mountain from Chitty Chitty Bang Bang to like four little kids who came to visit him on the set. And we're just like, literally like everyone stops what they're doing. and just goes, Oh my God, he's singing Hushabye mountain. So, uh, he, he was great. Um, we had a great time. I wish I could have done another one with him. Uh, and his son was cool. Barry, uh, that guy should do voiceovers. I'm sure he does, but boy, well, he's a good voice. Um, so that was really fun. That was actually a corrective experience for me uh, working at that company. So it was uh, really nice. And that was the last thing I did for them. 
Now, for the audience members today who are watching the video version of this episode, they might have noticed that you're wearing a hat today that's got the Route 30 logo. Route 30 is uh, trilogy movies. Those are your babies, basically. Uh, you directed. These are these are your things. So can you tell us a little about the Route 30 series? Thank you. Um, yes. Um, uh, at When I was working at this television movie factory uh, in the mid-2000s, uh, it's there where I realized uh, that the director uh, in television is not what I was raised to believe a director is. It's not, he's not the original, he's not the author of the, of the, of the piece really it's other people. So um, that's when I got the idea to, uh, you know, go uh, super eight style home movie style and get a bunch of actors, write a script and get a video camera, an HD camera and go off and make, make some, movie but feature length so i started with a movie called mojave phone booth as an experiment which i was going to ask about by the way because i always love hearing steve gutenberg stories but we'll save that for a sequel episode i think <laughs> love that's where I'm, i met steve on the poseidon adventure and then i asked him hey do you want to do this 12-day movie for a hundred dollars you know a day you know and we have to do our own makeup and stuff and yeah, i love he said yes um yeah, so it started with Mojave Phone Booth, and then pretty soon it was. I got the bug in doing it. I realized oh, I got to go back to Pennsylvania and shoot some stuff in my hometown because that's where the good, that's where the good stuff is. And so I started writing this Route Thirty uh, movie, and um, and got all my friends together and and went back and made that happen. And it turned out to be a huge uh, success back there. the The area adopted it as their own. And they came out to all the screenings and premieres and bought DVDs and, and were proud of it. And on the opening night of the first film, when I was showing it in Chambersburg or Gettysburg that night, someone asked me, is there, are there going to, is there going to be a, a sequel? And I blurted out, no, it's going to be, it's a trilogy. There's two more. And I had no plans to make a sequel or a, or a third film at all. And uh, everyone just, cheered and roared and i like i literally left that day going well i guess i guess i've got to i'm gonna try and make two more and uh each one got like the star wars um original trilogy you know how the second one was darker you know and then the third one was like tied up a lot of i i followed that route so the second route 30 movie was a zany send-up of space you know and supernatural crap and um and then the third one, I, I got, you know, I tried to tie up a bunch of loose ends and uh, it took it, 10 years. I mean, every, every two, two, three years, we'd, I'd, we'd go back there and make these, these great fun movies. And with each one, the technology improved, but it was me, my cameraman, Keith, we each were on a camera. I had a sound guy and I had a crew. There were no more than eight of us at one time. Uh, shooting those movies and all the actors did their own makeup and we set them up with what clothes to wear on what day. And they were all their own clothes and um, everyone had to drive themselves to work. And uh, all I had to do was fly them to Pennsylvania, make sure they had food money and a place to place to stay. And we did like a, you know, super gorilla fun low budget movies but the difference between what you normally hear about those kind of films and me is i don't want it to be stressful or work-like so 
the edict I had when making all these three movies was it's, it, it's gotta be more fun than it is work. And if it's, if it's stressful or worky or tiring, we're not doing it right. And I'm going to stop it. And so as a result, you know, I don't, I don't like to shoot long days and I, and I know when I have a shot and I have the the take I need, I'm ready to, to do another one or I'm ready to move on. I don't need two. If one works, what do you need two for? There's no negative that's going to be scratched anymore. You know, that's the reason you used to do protection takes when there was film, because you, you could never know if the negative, you know, was scratched in the mag or there was a hair in the gate. So you'd always do two in case one of them didn't work. Well, with digital, you don't have to do that. You could do it once or twice and, and move on. So, so it was really fun. And uh, those films are all available on the Route30Trilogy.com website. Uh, you can click the watch button and it'll take you to Vimeo On Demand and you can watch, rent and watch for very cheaply all of the films and all of the bonus material. We'll have links to that in the show notes as well. So anybody who wants to check out those films, of course, feel free to definitely recommend that you guys do. So John, you've described yourself as a, a micro budget filmmaker, or I like to call it often like a guerrilla filmmaker. Uh, it's kind of thing that like Werner Herzog will talk about a lot where it's like basically finding ways to get the job done, whether it's legal or not, uh, finding ways to do it under budget, no budget, whatever it is. Um, so you know, do you have any advice for any aspiring directors who want to get out there and want to make some work, but they worry about not having a budget, not having any kind of actors or access to things? What would you say to someone to help them get motivated and make a film from start to finish? Well, I think you got to get over the aspect that you have, that you're making the movie, uh, that it has to be, uh, it has to fit into some uh, known uh, ideal. And you have to, you basically, uh, let me rephrase that. You have to look at what you have in your resources, utilize your resources in making your movie. Uh and then write the movie around what you have access to. So it, this is how I did it with all the Route Thirties. If if you have if your uncle owns the Ford dealership in your town, then guess where your main character is going to work? You've got a giant car dealership as as the backdrop for you know your movie that costs two dollars to make. So you have to be really crafty about what you have, and so. I reverse, I don't write movies just out of thin air anymore. It it doesn't work. I literally see a place or, or go somewhere or, or have been somewhere that I go, Oh my God, that's a unique place. I've got a, there's gotta be a scene played here or there's got, and all of a sudden you're going, Oh my God, I'm writing a scene here and this is spiraling off into this. And I could use that place over there. And I love this character that did this one day when I passed him in the hall. And, uh, you know, these think about don't just sit down and write some doctor, lawyer, emergency action movie, you know, look around, see what you got at your, your, what you got at your fingertips and then figure out how you can make a cool movie with that. And that way it keeps the costs down. And of course you want to, you don't want to write anything in that you can't afford, you know, to get or do, you know? So that's why the, my movies are all set in the mountains or in the country or something. I mean, the biggest get we had was that rock quarry in, in route 30 part one, there was a giant, beautiful rock quarry, never been shot at. I used to swim at it when I was a kid, I found the owner and I said, would you ever let me shoot some scenes there? 
And they go, yeah, as long as we can come watch. And all of a sudden I have the most majestic, uh, you know, uh, location I've ever seen in a movie that costs $60,000. Uh, same with, uh, I think in, in route 30, Oh no. In father and the bear, which was my last film, which was a drama. I shot the entire thing at the, the, the theater, the, uh, summer stock theater that I grew up at, which uh, I'm still connected to in many ways. And, uh, they gave me just full, they gave me the key and said, here, just come in and shoot right after the show, the season's over. And I got to use the entire facility and create a whole movie around it. Uh, and that same movie I got to shoot in a courtroom in downtown Chambersburg with, you know, no lights, just available light. And all I had to do was like pay the, the guy that let us in on a Saturday. But if you don't ask, you know, you, you'll never find out. But like, like I said, the best analogy is, is if, if you, if your parents own a country club with a golf course on it, guess what your movie's going to be about? a country club and a golf course. So, you know, those, those that's the kind of mentality that, uh, that I would uh, offer as a, to, to those who want to make a micro budget movie, but you know, you can make a movie today. If you r- know how to run the equipment, which you should know, and you really should know how to edit, you should edit your own movie because you'll become a better filmmaker. If you edit stuff that you shot, cause you'll know exactly what's lacking, uh, what you didn't get, uh, so for next time, um, but you should do all that stuff yourself. And then you don't have to rely on, you know, three, four other people that you have to beg to do something or try to raise the money or get some scratch to pay them. So it's, it's all about, it's, it's okay to do it alone. And, uh, if you think about, if you think about making a narrative film, like you would a documentary, you think, well, all I need to make a dock is I need a camera and a couple of little LED lights and a microphone. And I go off and I interview people and on a tripod and I shoot B-roll outside their house or, you know, whatever town they're in. That's the mentality you have when you make a, you should make a micro budget movie. It's the same mentality. You got a camera, a boom pole, you know, plug it into the camera and you've got a couple actors and you show up and you do the scene. That's how it works. I think. It kind of reminds me of a story I just read recently about, uh, it was a bet between Bennett Cerf and Dr. Seuss. And uh-huh. basically he was like limiting, uh, Bennett had like this, this bet with him, like saying, you could, you could you write a book with only using like X amount of words. And that's how Dr. Seuss ended up writing green eggs and ham. Cause it was like, really? he's only allowed to use 50 different words. And that's so, great. and so it's basically working within your limitations and your constraints, yeah. but not being limited by those limitations and taking advantage of them, taking advantage of the resources you have. Yeah, Exactly. Exactly. And, uh, you know, I find when you have that mindset, you, you, great ideas come, come front when you're, when you, when you think that way, you're not, you're not sitting there going, man, how am I going to get a parking lot of 25 people all honking their horns for this one wide shot I want to do? Well, instead of that, you know, you're like, uh, Hey, there's a drive-in movie theater over there. And it's never used during the day because it's a drive-in. It has to be at night. What could I shoot at the drive-in? I don't need 25 cars. I've got this incredible open lot drive-in. It's, it's, it, it, it's just, uh, it's hard for a writer to sit down and not want to like, you know, make their stuff huge and big but if you're going to do it yourself and use a credit card or crowdfund it or something, and 
you, you just have to, you can't have any of that stuff in your movie. And that's why low budget micro budget movies take place outside and in small towns or in cars or in parks or in houses. But you know, if you're clever about it, you can, you can add production value to that idea. And uh, like I said, you'll just get great ideas come out of limitations. Very true. So I know we're doing this interview in the middle of a pandemic and the film industry has kind of come to a bit of a halt. At this point, it's starting to, things are starting to get moving again. But uh, you know, can you tell us a little bit about uh, some projects that you had come out before this began and what you're hoping to get back to once uh, the world has unpaused itself? I was doing some television before the pandemic and uh, that sort of ended. Um, and um, I got a couple things that are been delayed, uh, job jobs. Uh, but, you know, I'm, I don't know what I'm going to do of my own yet. Cause uh, you know, I, my, uh, I got to figure out a way to d- take my own advice and do it extremely cheap, even cheaper than I have been doing it for the past, you know, 10 years uh, if I want to get back out there. But um, I, I've got, uh, you know, a whole list of things that I've been trying to work on and get going and using the time wisely to uh, plan and, you know, scheme and see what I, you know, and, and meanwhile, keep my eyes open on everything I see and pass. I drive cross country a lot and I go through some really amazing areas and I, I'm always taking, making a note of, wow, this town would look awesome in a movie and no one's ever seen it. And uh, so I'm always looking, looking as I go. So I, I have a little, I have a little notepad with all my stuff. Nothing to, cool. nothing to uh, reveal right now. <laughs> All right. We'll keep our eyes and ears open for that. So, John, last question for the day. What is the best thing about being a part of the Star Trek universe? Oh, my God. Uh, just being a part of it in many ways. I, I got to I got to be a part of two two of the sections, really. Next Generation, the series, which was tentpole at the time, and then, and then the movie right after. So, um, it... it just you know glad to have it and those great stories uh i i remember them vividly and i don't think i'll ever forget them L- loads of fun it's like uh i don't know it's like being in a club kind of because you know you run into people all the time and you know that you've that have done the show as well so i don't know as a fan being a part of it you know it's pretty great the only thing it would have topped it was would have been being able to like literally visit the the real show. But I was so young and we weren't even in the business then, my family. So we were just theater people at that time. So we never got a shot. Would have been fun, though, if my mom had ever done a Star Trek. That would have been pretty fun. But, you know, she did other stuff instead. <laughs> it would have been great. Have you ever gone to any Star Trek conventions, John? Uh no, I know them well. Uh, I've been to Comic Cons and other stuff, but not ever as me, not ever appearing. I've been asked many times. Uh, I think they uh, they submit you as a potential choice for a convention. I think there's there's some kind of nominating thing. Anybody can nominate anybody. But so I've had a lot of contact from people over the years wanting to be the the nominator of me and what I what I have come to realize is, is I could nominate myself supposedly. And there's some cut this person takes by nominating you. So they get part of the, I really don't want to uh, sell my signature and, you know, but I think I'm just a, you know, 
you know, I'm a, I'm an alien of the week guy. And, uh, I, I just prefer, I'd love to do a Q and a, if I ever needed, was asked or, uh, you know, participate in, you know, a panel, but I don't, I don't know. I, I get plenty of mail and I send the pictures, I sign them and I send it, but I don't think I get enough to, to, to move the needle at a, at a convention. You know, there are other people that do. Well, I wouldn't sell yourself short. I mean, Trekkies, we love meeting folks who have been in the show. And if you've never done a con, especially too, I know folks would love to have a chance to meet you, get to take a picture with you and just hear all your stories. Cause yeah, you've clearly got some great ones that you share with us today. And I, I know, you know, I, I feel pretty privileged actually be able to hear them today. And I, I bet a lot of fans would just love to actually meet Mendon and Mordock. So hopefully one day <laughs> they'll come out to a convention and do one of them. Well, if I didn't have to sit behind a desk and sell signatures, I'd be happy <laughs> to do that. But that part just it feels wrong to me. I'd rather just give them away. So. But what if you just walk around with like your photo on your chest, just walk around with the camera and do like a little doc of something about the convention. Can, can that, can we do that? Is that technicality? Uh, I, I just can't imagine <laughs> doing that. It just seems so wrong and self-serving. <laughs> if there's some way to figure out how to do it, I could make the film about it. Maybe. That's the next project. Yeah, maybe. It's something to do. All right. Well, John, thank you so much for your time today. It's been real great. Yeah, stories are amazing. Uh, of course, I always love hearing Shatner stories. Never get tired of those. Uh, right. So yeah, it's been it's been great chatting, and I hope we can do it again some other time. Appreciate all your time, all your generosity, and all your information today. So thank you so My much. My pleasure. You're so welcome. That was fun. So that was our chat with John Putch, who is definitely the kind of guy I could spend all day chatting with, not just about Star Trek, but classic TV, films, directing, all sorts of things. He's got a Rolodex of great stories about some amazing people, and I really had a good time chatting with him today. And I do recommend you check out some of the films that he's made on his own, which we're going to have links for in all the show notes and descriptions for this episode. Now, we didn't mention it in this interview, but the episode Coming of Age was actually nominated for an Emmy in 1988 for Outstanding Achievement in Makeup. That first season of Next Generation garnered seven nominations total and won three awards, with of course many, many more on the way for future seasons of TNG and other shows. While Ben Zeitz debuted on Star Trek The Next Generation, those aliens were seen several times throughout the other series, including on Deep Space Nine, which also had one time where Hilary Shepard played a Ben Zeitz, which we spoke to her previously on this show, and Ben Zeitz also appeared on Enterprise and on the Lower Decks cartoon. You can also play as a Ben Zeitz in Star Trek Online, which explains the reason why Ben Zeitz and TNG were that breathing apparatus and why they stopped by the time they showed up in Deep Space Nine. According to the Star Trek Online game, which by the way is not necessarily considered canon, some Benzites chose to be genetically modified to remove the need for that device. And if you take a deep dive into the Star Trek novels, and even the Star Trek TNG role-playing game from the late 90s, you'll learn that this species has been into genetic modification for quite some time. But if you want to learn more about this complicated thing and the whole canon versus non-canon debates about the Benzites, you'll have to wait for another episode and possibly a whole other podcast just for that. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Trek Untold. Whether you're listening to this show on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or any audio platforms, or our YouTube channel, youtube.com Nerd News Today, please make sure you subscribe to whatever format you're listening to so you can ensure you get the new episodes of this show as soon as they come out. And that's every Thursday on audio platforms and every Sunday on YouTube for the video version. Please don't forget to check out our Teespring store to check out some of the merch we have for this show at teespring.com slash stores slash trekuntold. You can also support this podcast by visiting patreon.com slash trekuntold to become a Patreon. We've got a few different tiers that offer some different benefits that you might enjoy, so please take a look if you can. If you want to get updates on who's going to be on the newest episode of the shows, please follow us on social media on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, all at trekuntold. That's one word, no spaces, trekuntold. But one of the biggest things you can do to help out this show is to interact with us. 
whether that's leaving a rating or review on iTunes or wherever you're listening to this podcast, or leaving a comment or giving it a thumbs up on YouTube. It costs you nothing but time and helps out this show tremendously to get more attention and get more listeners to help this podcast continue to grow and expand. So until next time, I'm Matthew Kaplowitz. This has been Trek Untold. And remember, fortune favors the bold.